0: This is an RNZ podcast.
1: Hello there, I'm Richard Scott and welcome to the podcast hour, the show where I share some of the best audio storytelling from around the world. Coming up today, getting to grips with language in The Illusionist, and a story about people with unusual names.
2: I mean, I think it's a pretty strong name, Judge. It's much better than
1: convict.
3: My name is Casper Salmon, as in Salmon the Fish.
1: We speak to The Illusionist's host and podcast veteran, Helen Zoltzman, who's coming to New Zealand soon for three live shows. Then, how digital technology and online life is changing the way we read. Starting with tab browsing. Keeping a lot of
4: tabs open is the informational equivalent of scheduling 15 doctor's appointments in a single week. There's no way you're going to make all of them. You're going to drive yourself nuts trying.
2: Tab clutter is the overstuffed closet of the reading mind, and Ernie says, we need to let it go.
1: And before we go, Switched On Pop goes deep on some of today's biggest hits, analysing them by reference to Baroque art, the Bee Gees, and even Bach.
5: And maybe I'll let you
6: like the Hockett.
7: It's like DNA. It makes me think of DNA.
1: And next time you hear something good, then please do let me know about it. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. And on Twitter, we're at rnzpodcasthour. Hour. Hangnail. Freelancing. Gossip. Nostril. The English language is full of weird and wonderful words. And The Illusionists, a popular show that delights in finding the stories behind them and exploring how we're using words and language today. It's brainy, but it wears its learning lightly, so it's not at all stuffy, overly academic or obscure. And a lot of that is down to its host. Helen Zortzman's been making podcasts since the early days, way, way back in 2007, and she's on her way to New Zealand for the first time to do some live shows. She was supposed to be coming here last year, but she got sick in Tasmania, like proper hospital sick, and couldn't make it. I'll talk to her in just a moment. First, though, here's an episode of The Illusionist that asks people, from DJ Funk to Casper Salmon, what it's like to have an unusual
0: name. What's your name? My name is Paul B.
8: As in...? Bae, B-A-E.
0: As in Bae, B-A-E. It's Korean, so it's actually pronounced bae, which is how we say stomach oh. or tummy.
8: Your name is Paul Stomach.
0: Yeah, Paul, Paul Tummy. I was born hungry.
8: But then in English, mid-2014, usage started peaking, as in like the internet's boyfriend.
0: Yeah, I was near the end of my teaching career in high school, and that's when Bay really took off. I'm not saying that contributed to my early retirement, but... <laughs> It did get really annoying. What happened? Whenever I got new students in or transferred to my class in 2014, especially when a girl transferred, I remember one, um, she transferred in. I go, hi, my name's Mr. Bay. And she said she sort of smirked. And I thought, what <laughs> what the hell does that mean? The day, I remember the day I figured it out. Um, a bunch of young girls were out assembled outside my classroom and I could hear them whispering, that's not really his name, is it? He's gotta be joking. Because before then, the big thing among my students was, you know, some once in a while, the cheeky bastards would call me Master Bay. Oh. That's their idea of funny. And I'd see them giggling yeah. and, you know, and winking at each other. And I'd be like, okay, okay, I get it.
9: But the broad thing about having an unusual name is that it's a pretty effective substitute for an actual personality. I never had to develop one because people, you can just do anything and people kind of assume you're interesting or that there is some sort of grandiosity behind it. Very colourful character. I'm really very boring and quiet and the fact that I'm called Tiger, I think, does a lot to mask that. Mm. It'd be like, oh, wow, yeah, Tiger, interesting fellow. No, I'm not, though. But, you know, feel free to think that. It's also, I'm in this weird class of unusual name because, like, absolutely nothing else, demographically speaking, about me is unusual. (laughs) Like,
10: boring, middle-class, white guy. When you have a name like Peregrine, you feel like you have to be a writer or a painter or something um that actually i think that's that's created a certain amount of baggage for me it's it's sometimes i feel it's almost like if you're going to have a name as interesting as that then you need to be doing something interesting and if you're not the most interesting person in the room then how dare you be called something so weird
3: what's your name uh my name is dennis funk
8: as in funk
3: as in funk however you want to take that.
8: (laughs) How do you take it?
3: You know, because people do find it silly. I like to to take it as the music, like funk music. Like, my name is Dennis Funk, but my middle initial is J, so I often do tell people that my name is DJ Funk, so that it spins it like that a little bit.
8: So the funk name runs in the family?
3: I guess it does, doesn't it? (laughs) Does the funk run in the family? Does the funk run in the family? Oh, yeah, definitely.
8: My name is Phoebe
2: Judge. Yes, as in a judge. I feel pretty good about my last name. I think it's a pretty funny last name to have, considering I'm the host of a show about crime. I mean, I think it's a pretty strong name, judge. It's much better than convict.
3: My name is Casper salmon. salmon. Yes, as in Salmon the Fish. It's a family name, but we're not named after the actual fish, which I think is an important distinction. Uh, it's not like there were salmon... Fishers in the family. It doesn't go back to a history of, you know, connection with the <laughs> fish. I think it comes from from Solomon. So it's a derivation. Solomon, Suleiman, all of that. It's it's Jewish. Huh. But then it became salmon. Stupidly, which isn't good.
8: In what ways is it not good?
3: Well, no. I mean, it's fine, but it's not. It's not a, a very attractive or sort of noble name.
8: It's a mighty fish. The- They're very muscular.
3: Yeah, it's a really good fish and a brave and determined fish and the finest tasting, I think, of all of them. But... But
8: you just don't want to be affiliated with fish.
3: Well, no. I, so I'm fine with it. But I do, I do forget because it's my name that it is the name of a fish. So for me, I just walk around and I think, you know, this is my normal surname. And then I tell my name to people, and they say the fish, and I have to think to myself, yes, of course, it's the fish name. My name
9: is Cinnamon, as in the spice. How do I feel about it? I think I've felt conflicted about my name since I was small. Um, When I was a child, kids teased me about my name. Donuts, buns, sticks, bark, etc. I guess I like my name now, although sometimes I feel like other people have some kind of romantic notion about what I'm actually like because of my name. So, yeah. Maybe I have, like, name imposter syndrome or something. Some people also ask me if it's a stage name, and I have been told it's kind of a stripper name, so... Yeah, there's a lot of associations <laughs> that people have with my name. People have asked me whether I'm spicy and they think they're being smart or funny. And sometimes it's hard to be cool about it when I've probably heard most of those things before because I've had this name all my life. People
11: kind of say one of three things when they meet me. Uh, first of all, you know, people always say, is that your real name? And I'm always like, yes, it's on my birth certificate. It's my government name, yes Um, The other thing people usually say is, uh, are you really a princess? (laughs) And I I mean, I don't know, it's so corny that, I don't know, I just alternate between yes and no, depending on my mood. The other thing people say is, uh, you look like a princess, which I get that one less often. (laughs) And I'm not quite sure what that means. I just take it to mean that they think I'm pretty like pretty pretty princess but uh I mean I'll take that one and I have gotten oh my pet's name is princess like that's my dog and you know that's fine (laughs) it's just an interesting thing to say to someone like oh yeah that's my dog's name
10: People would say it wrong, and then they would say pedigree chum, which they always thought was um, quite funny. And of course, peregrine falcon. And the, you know, the number of times that say peregrine falcon as if no one's ever thought of that. Of course, I then respond as if no one has ever thought of that. Peregrine falcon, is it? No one's ever called me that. Wow. You say your name is Tiger, and then people are like,
9: "Oh, I know one William Blake poem. Guess which one it is. It's Tiger, Tiger, burning bright." And then they just recite it at you. That's weird. Never heard that before. That's a rude thing (laughs) to do as well. Like, I've never learned anyone's name and then done a poem at them.
8: How was it growing up with the name Casper Salmon? Growing up was okay
3: because um, I went to school in France.
8: Were you tempted to translate it for impact in France to Saumon?
3: That could have been a way forward, but it depends on how you pronounce it in French because. Salmon is best for teasing, because if you, if you pronounce it Salmon instead of Salmon, you could call me Qu'est-ce que c'est le con, which means piss off, you twat.
8: Oh, so it's actually worse in French. <laughs> well, it, it just
3: it, it has that possibility if you want to take it. It um, doesn't occur to everybody and it would be wrong for me to suggest it to people who haven't thought of it for themselves.
9: Um, I did have a really annoying period in my late teens when my high school friends uh, at parties decided it would be very funny to interrupt my, yes, it's really Tiger, here's my licence, and go, oh, Gareth, are you <laughs> are you telling that story again about how you're called Tiger? Oh, this is our friend Gareth, he does this to everyone. It's a fake licence, don't worry about it, his name's Gareth, he's ashamed of it, and that's a really hard thing to walk back. <laughs>
1: The Illusionist, episode 83, yes, as in, produced and presented by Helen Saltzman for Radiotopia. Now, Helen started The Illusionist in 2015, but by then she was already a bit of a veteran of the podcast scene. In 2007, she'd started her first show, Answer Me This, with her uni friend, Ollie Mann, who you might have heard me talking to on the podcast hour last year about his show, The Modern Man. Anyway, 12 years and 370 episodes on, and Answer Me This... It's still going strong.
8: What's funny is that at the time we thought we were a bit late to the party because in the the British charts there were a lot of famous comedians already in there and we thought, ah, uh, there's no chance. But in retrospect, that was not the case.
1: So what did you know about podcasting when you started?
8: Oh, nothing. Um, I didn't know anything. I, I hadn't listened to them and I didn't know any other podcasters for really quite a long time, years. And there wasn't that much information around. So we just had to start, which I think in retrospect was a good thing. So now I see people really getting very, very over-informed. And they panic because they see all these things that they think they have to do. And they're also aware of the shows that they like and they want to be like those shows. But the fundamentals have not changed in that you need something to record on and something to edit on and something to say and quite a lot of time. And that's pretty much it. Then everything is infinite variations thereof.
1: And over time, I guess it becomes more and more natural for you. You become more comfortable with the technology. And I guess part of it is actually just finding your own voice, being yourself and not being you on a microphone you talking to somebody
8: yeah absolutely and and i think i have slightly different personas on different shows or if i'm on other people's shows they're fairly consistent it, it's not <laughs> it's not a huge cognitive dissonance but yeah it's continually learning and um i think that's a a good thing what's very nice is that it if the listeners think that you're their friend and um i think listeners can sense insincerity in audio easier than they can in other forms of media, which is interesting, but you're, you're just right there with them. And so I think they they listen to things where there are people that they enjoy the company of.
1: And feedback's quite an important, you know, that kind of community and it feeding back questions and things. It's important in both your shows, isn't it? Answer Me This and The Illusionist.
8: Yeah. So Answer Me This is uh, it's, it's listener questions on myriad topics. So we had them involved from the very beginning, which which at the time was a, a way to avoid us doing all of the work by ourselves and having to think up topics each episode. So it was a pragmatic decision because at that time, it wasn't automatic that every form of entertainment was asking you to interact with it because I wasn't on Facebook then. Twitter was still the internal messaging service of a failing audio company called Odeo. And I wasn't on that either. And uh, you didn't see news channels asking you to use a hashtag, for instance. So it was just very felicitous that we did that. But also it just helped build a community around the show. And that's, that's a really lovely thing to have. And you, you get such an insight into people's lives. So if you're kind of voyeuristic, it's fantastic.
1: And then how did The Illusionist come about? Because you'd been doing Answer Me This for, for a few years. And then you had yeah. the opportunity to join this big podcast network, Radiotopia.
8: Yeah, because in Britain, there weren't really opportunities to make a living out of podcasting at that time. And my friend Roman Mars, who makes podcast 99% Invisible, founded uh, Radiotopia. He wanted it to be like an indie record label, but for speech audio. And I knew it, he was a big fan of Answer Me This, and I knew that he wanted to work with me. So I'd had the idea for this show, and I didn't want to have to make it for free for years, like Answer Me This, because uh, that was uh, financially a terrible... Time in my life, <laughs> it puts so a lot of strain on you. So you were doing it for nothing,
1: you. were you answer me. This was just what, a, like, a, just a, a project that you just did, what to build your brand in inverted commas, or, or you know, you, yeah. you you didn't have any money coming in all that time.
8: After a few years, we did, but we it was indirectly useful because off the back of answering this, I got nicer jobs. Right. But for a while it just seemed like you would never be able to make money off a podcast itself. So when the Illusionist started, Answer Me This Was Making OK Money, I think it was paying for my time by then, but not enough to live on. And so Roman came over to stay and um, he was very jet-lagged and I took him for a walk around the park and I thought, get him while he's vulnerable. <laughs> and I uh, pitched this show to him and he was like, yeah, yeah all right. Uh, I think they. Uh, he went back to PRX who helped run Radiotopia and uh, they tried to figure out whether they could get a bit of money to make it for a year and whether I would actually deliver cuz I think they were worried about people who would just make four podcasts a year which is uh, yeah. insufficient and um, and they thought, well, she's made podcasts for no real reason for eight years fairly regularly, so she can probably do it.
1: You've got a track record at least. Because I guess it's really easy... Well, not easy, but you can have an idea, but there's a big, big difference between having a good idea and being able to deliver on that consistently a show every week or two weeks or month uh, and do that Absolutely. again and again and again.
8: I was an absolute champion before podcasts of not acting on ideas that I had which was partly laziness and I think probably partly fear of failing the idea. And at the beginning of Answer Me This, I think we did feel, and this is a common feeling when you first hear the podcasts that you make and you think, God, I sound so annoying and I hate my voice and everything I say is stupid. A lot of people never get over how disappointed they are mm. at the first one and they never make another one. But because there were two of us and because we'd already decided that we were going to come out every week, we pushed through that pain barrier and I think just the regularity. And it, and also, it was never that fun. I think if something starts as fun and then becomes less fun, you might give up on it. But if it was never fun, you don't feel that sense of loss of fun. I'm not making it sound like a good
1: pursuit, am I? Now, come on. I've heard you. I, I, I read a review of you, and you may have seen this one. It said, your voice is the embodiment of a warm, <laughs> fuzzy, patterned cardigan. Have you read that review?
8: <laughs> I think that's lovely. a compliment, isn't it? I, I, I'm going to interpret it, <laughs> Take as, it as one. A compliment. <laughs> yeah, it depends on the context of the cardigan. I guess if it's high summer, then it's unwelcome. Or if someone's put it in your spaghetti sauce.
1: And why did you choose language? What, what, why was that the subject that you went for?
8: Uh, for the illusionist, I'd always been very interested in language since I became verbal. And um, I went to the kind of school where we learnt Latin from the age of seven. And um, that was when I started thinking, oh, I wonder if that word's connected to this word. And I always found, I know, Oh, can you imagine, what a child. (laughs) And um, I just always found etymology quite intuitive. And um, I studied um, a lot of linguistics related stuff at university. And then just after university, I applied for a job as an etymologist on the Oxford English Dictionary and didn't get it. So I thought that would be it for me and that subject forever. But in Answer Me This, we get a lot of questions about why is this phrase or why is this thing called this thing? And I always enjoy answering those things. So uh, I knew it was a topic that people were interested in and that I was interested in. And we pretty much everyone alive uses language in some form. So I think it's possible to make everyone interested in it if you get them the right way. So... Some people are like, oh, that's a bit niche. But it's not niche if it's something that every person uses.
1: Yeah, it's not an, it's not an academic approach to language, is it? Because, I mean, there are shows out there that are probably a bit more academic in their scope. But you're talking very much about how language is being used today and, and the vagaries of it. And some of the just downright bizarre things we say <laughs> and why we say them. I mean, they're just ridiculous, some right. of the things, aren't they?
8: Absolutely. and And that's what I find interesting is really human behaviour. I'm not an academic, so I couldn't do that. And maybe if I had been more academically minded, I would have got that Oxford English Dictionary job and my life would have been totally different. But to me, the interesting question that I'm always trying to ask in every episode is why? Why is this thing happening? And I think often you just use you use language without necessarily having to think too hard about it. And then once you start thinking about it, you think, what? what? What on earth is going on?
1: And you're, you're coming down to New Zealand and Australia in April, May, and June, I think, aren't you?
8: Yes, very, very excited. Never been to New Zealand
1: before. Because you got to Australia last year, and you were <laughs> going to come to New Zealand. And I heard an interview with you with Kim Hill on on RNZ, where you know you were you were coming over, and things didn't quite go according to plan, though, did they?
8: No. Just a couple of days after I talked to Kim, I <laughs> I ended up in hospital in Tasmania and remained there for three and a half weeks. So uh, my trip to New Zealand was thwarted, but I'm back and I'm going to do shows, uh, Illusionist Live show, which is a bit of fun.
1: How does that work? Because that's that's a show that you record live and then you put out on your podcast. No, no. no
8: that's a show that only happens live. Ah, Because uh, cause it's different when you're talking to people down their headphones. Uh, it's very different because often I'm in the room by myself when that's happening. But when you're in a big room with them, you have to do things a bit differently to make it worthwhile them taking out their headphones and going to a place
1: for it's the It's a performance, evening. I guess, isn't it? In a, in, it's a
8: performance, in, right. It, yeah. yeah, give them something to look at because uh, I'm not visually very interesting, so you have to put, <laughs> put some slides up. My, my husband, Martin, does live scoring on stage. Just often when you're recording in a room with people, you're either playing to that audience so the people listening elsewhere feel very much like they're not part of it or you're thinking about the podcast and therefore the performance can be just a little bit drab so I like the fact that it's just a theatrical event don't have to worry about it and then later I mean I might rewrite some of it and record it as a podcast but it's nice not to worry about that in the moment.
1: Do you enjoy that aspect of things, the performance side of things? Because it must be quite different, what is essentially quite a solitary pursuit, you know, doing your podcast every week and you do it on the road and yes, you do lonely. it all around the world yep. and it can be, I guess, <laughs> lonely. Okay, Um, But to, to go from that into kind of uber performer mode, um, th- is that a challenge or is that something that comes quite easily to you?
8: Yeah, it does come quite easily to me. I don't want to be hubristic about it and suddenly become someone who gets stage fright or... <laughs> Uh, I get overconfident and fall off a stage and break my face. But I was doing bits of performance before I was a podcaster, even kind of not exactly stand up, but stand up adjacent things. Like I I wrote some little weird plays and I did on stage embroidery for a friend's theatrical run of her comedy show. So every night for 12 nights, I embroidered a different scene from her show. So weird things like that. And I've never really got stage fright, except for once when I had to sing at someone's wedding. But apart from that, it doesn't really happen. So it feels like quite a quite a laid back thing to do. Uh, and also they're pretty easy gigs to have a good time at because it's not like comedy where people have gone to a club and they're like, OK, make me laugh. The people who come are almost all people that have heard the show and they're already on my side, which is very nice.
1: Helen Zaltzman of The Illusionist podcast. And those live shows are taking place in Auckland this Friday, the 12th of April at the ASB Waterfront Theatre, then in Wellington on Friday, the 26th of April at the National Library of New Zealand. And finally in Christchurch on Wednesday, the 22nd of May at the Maryvale Lane Theatre. You can find more details if you go to rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour now. Do you ever wish you could read a bit more? And I don't mean all those texts, news alerts and notifications we get bombarded with 24-7 either. Some people are worried that constant access to all these little bite-sized chunks of language and information could be changing the way we read. So are we becoming skimmers and headline-grabbing multitaskers, losing our ability to concentrate on a long-form article or a whole book? Well, it's a topic tech journo Manu Sommerodi gets into in the IRL podcast in an episode called TLDR, short for Too Long Didn't Read, with the journalist and author Derek Thompson.
2: So we have this basic human impulse to gobble up easy info. But as with so much, the internet produces a massive uptick in quantity. It raises
0: the degree of the problem. I am realistic about the nature of newsreaders. We are not inherently a species that wants to read 1,500-word articles every day, all days of the week. We are a species that, from time to time, gets curious about reading longer articles. And it's our job, it's the, auth- it's the journalism community's job to do our best, to, to essentially write that piece that punches that ticket.
2: Derek Thompson is a staff writer at The Atlantic. Okay, here's something to consider. Neuroscientists have made it pretty clear the human brain cannot multitask. We may think we're doing many things all at once, but actually, our brain is just switching attention very fast from one thing to another. So, trying to understand everything, read everything at once, not possible. Chapter Two An Anti Tab Manifesto.
4: I think that people often have this tendency to keep all this stuff open because. They don't really have any self-control.
2: This is Ernie Smith. He writes a newsletter called Tedium, and he wrote a call to arms to those of us who make reading promises we cannot possibly keep. I mean, has this happened to you? You're reading a column on how to create new habits for the new year. You're also on a Wikipedia page about net neutrality. And you're also browsing a listicle explaining why scrunchies are back in style. I mean, are they? Please tell me the jury's still out on that. Anyway, in all these posts... They have embedded links leading to other interesting things. So you open a tab, and then another tab, and then another. And pretty soon, yeah, you know it, the tabs are breeding like bunnies, and you can't close them because they're too important and interesting. So they sit there, taunting
4: you. Keeping a lot of the tabs open is the informational equivalent of scheduling 15 doctor's appointments in a single week. There's no way you're going to make all of them. You're going to drive yourself nuts trying.
2: Tab clutter is the overstuffed closet of the reading mind, and Ernie says,
4: we need to let it go. I'm aware that the next important detail might be hiding behind the next tab, like the world's smallest needle in the world's largest haystack. But by keeping every tab open, I let the haystack win because I give every piece of information the same amount of value.
2: Once in a while, something will happen, like your laptop will crash and you lose all those tabs at once. You freak out, of course, but then this feeling of relief sets in. And maybe that feeling is worth replicating on purpose
4: or anything so. The thought process I had was that if I wasn't necessarily looking at something within, say, a 20-minute period, I would set up a plug so that I would automatically close that tab because I figured... Well, if I leave that tab open, I'm just probably, you know, it becomes a digital pack rat kind of situation, you know, like (laughs) at some point you're just like letting the idea of reading the story later beat out the simple desire to do searches and find and find information that you can use. It's like the wardrobe rule.
2: If you haven't worn it in the last two years, then you need to donate that stupid blouse that you bought on holiday when you thought you were a new person.
4: I think that looking at reading from the expectation that you're never going to get through everything, it kind of frees you a little bit to simply say, hey, this is something that that I could have some control over.
2: In life, you can't have it all. And you also can't read it all. Find a link to Ernie's Manifesto in the show notes at IRLpodcast.org and sign up for his newsletter, Tedium, while you're at it. I know, I know. I just gave you one more thing to read. Sorry. Chapter three, don't let good books go bad. No, let's try this. Chapter three, make books great again. I don't like that either. Chapter three, bringing sexy paperback. The Pew Research Center says a quarter of American adults didn't read a book in the past 12 months. In a 2017 survey from the Reading Agency, over two-thirds of Brits wish they had more time to read. It's not so much that books, actual printed books, are going anywhere anytime soon. But there's no denying that for many of us, concentrating on a good novel is just harder than it used to be. It's the kind of thing that Nancy Pearl also worries about. She's a librarian and an author.
12: I think that one of the things that worries me about the future of reading is that we don't give reading the same sexiness or importance that we give other aspects of our life.
2: Nancy is no Luddite. She's embraced technology and online reading like most of us. But she does believe that there's something about the printed page that can transport us in a way that digital reading cannot
12: it really gives us an understanding of other people and and you know manush we spend so much time in our own heads And with the people who think the way we think that we never have, we rarely get out of that. And the place where you can get out of that, where you can spend time in another person's consciousness and another person's shoes, if you will, is, is in the reading of a book.
2: And what's more, the value of a
12: good book is even simpler for her. I think that When you're reading a traditional book and you're holding it in your hand and you have the physicality of it, not to mention the kind of aesthetic sense of that nice new book smell, that's so different from reading on an e-reader. To me, an e-reader, it's very cold. You know, the page sort of exists there, but then it disappears when you turn it, you know, when you turn to the next page.
2: Maybe the difference is in how much space there is around the text. And I don't mean how big the margins are. I mean how much psychological space. A lot of things tend to solve themselves when you build in a little mental elbow room. There's this quote from a French scientist called Blaise Pascal. Nancy and I both love it. It goes, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone.
12: Isn't that wonderful? It is
2: wonderful. What is it that is so important about maintaining the ability to sit down alone and read a book for half an hour?
12: Because we need time in our lives to reflect on what we're reading, where we are in our life, what we're doing. And that sort of reflection that reading almost forces you to to partake in, that kind of reflection can only be done in a quiet place.
2: Nancy Pearl is a librarian and author in Seattle. She wrote Book Lust, A Guide to Good Reading. She even has an action figure made in her likeness, if you're into that kind of thing.
1: Manoush Somorodi with some of TLDR from the IRL podcast from Mozilla, the tech company behind the Firefox web browser. You're listening to the Podcast Hour on RNZ National. Michael Huddleston, a.k.a. Hudzy, shared some great listening recommendations with me recently. One of the shows he's enjoying is Switched On Pop, where musicologist Nate Sloan and a songwriter called Charlie Harding get together with a musical guest to geek out about some of today's biggest pop hits. And for a musical genre that sometimes gets dismissed as being a little bit lightweight and superficial, they take the job very seriously. They take a particular chord progression or a musical phrase and draw a surprising, often delightful parallel with something from classical music or art history. And it's these aha moments of recognition, revelation even, as the references get illustrated with studio instruments and queued-up audio clips, that I think really sets this show apart. Anyway, I'd be interested to see what you think. I've enjoyed episodes recently about the Camilla Cabello song, Cavana, Kendrick Lamar's Humble, and one on the history of auto-tune, featuring the music journalist Simon Reynolds. Here's a taster from an episode about Ariana Grande's hit, Into You. their guest the singer and musician kay flay they compare the song to a piece of baroque art with some clever audio tricks being used to make the song sound way more complex than it really is
13: there's something else that i didn't detect uh listening to this track until uh, i isolated the bass line Mm. this bass is like another trick it's not what it appears to be. Okay.
7: Yeah, I do think the ooh man voice was interesting.
13: I'd heard yeah. that one, but now I'm hearing
7: something else. There's another one.
13: The ooh man voice that I, I couldn't describe it better. <laughs> I think that's like a little clue as to what ah. this bass line actually is, which is not a synthesizer at all, huh. but... As we hear this sound transform and, and we it starts to change, it starts to become like kind of breathier. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right? It start, it's starting to open up a little bit. Doesn't she say I can't catch my breath at some point in this song, too? She might. Yeah, she does. Sounds like
7: something she'd it's, say.
13: It's transforming itself in front of our ears. Wow. And then all of a sudden <laughs> it's revealed what it truly is. Ooh. That is really awesome.
7: That's really nice. Isn't that
13: wild? So that was this airy, breathy ah uh, vocal.
6: Wow, that is a really cool track. I had no idea that was going on.
7: You know what's funny about hearing that is when I when I heard this song, like it kind of made me think about the Bee Gees. Really? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's the tempo or something about it, but like oh, it felt yeah. like a disco. I don't know, like. Yeah. I don't know what tempo it is. Like maybe one ten, or you know, it's like dancey but still not super fast. And hearing these men's like voices makes me think oh, it like yeah. low key is a Bee Gees track. Like couldn't you? <laughs> right? In
13: fact, the next part I was going to talk about, I think, is a very Bee Gees-esque sort of technique, All right. which is the moment towards the end of the song. This is the next trick. So I guess we're on trick number three now. Yeah. This is after the bridge, and we get a very different version of the chorus as we've heard it. Oh. It's
6: a, it's a great Every song. Time I hear
13: this song. It's really I want to hear good more song. Of it. <laughs> <laughs> so this moment, given what we were just talking about, this moment is really interesting to me because that moment when it comes out of the bridge, and you expect it to be this big, uh, dynamic moment, and it turns out to be this like kind of tighter, quieter moment, where all of a sudden all we hear are voices. Uh, mm-hmm. We have the voices of the 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 BGs men in the background, <laughs> the ah ahs. <laughs> Uh, and then we have Ariana Grande singing the melody, but then we also have a, like another chorus of Ariana Grande's kind of responding to that main mm-hmm. melody. We have another kind of puzzle here, another kind of trick in which everything perfectly fits together, yeah, like a little puzzle. And in a way, I don't know if this is intentional, but this reminds me so much of... Um, another kind of one of these techniques that was popular in the Baroque era, but in music, in some ways maybe the equivalent of like trompe l'oeil in painting would be a technique called hocket. So this is like a little bit of a
6: classical masters segment that you're taking us on.
13: (laughs) This is a mini classical masters, yeah.
6: Okay, what is a hocket?
13: What is a hocket? Great question. A hocket is when... Two different musical parts fit together in a way where, whenever one has a rest or a silence, the other one has a note, so that they are constantly kind of taking turns, going back and forth very, very quickly. Okay, great. (laughs) We can hear a short example of this in the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. the hocket
7: it's like dna it makes me think of dna
13: What is yes. DNA? oh like my a, god i love that yeah
7: like a double helix oh like a double helix. you know just like they kind of never <laughs> they're like forever bound and yes. make something beautiful but never appear at the same time
6: i thought dna for a second was another like really cool 70s disco reference <laughs> no. of a band that i didn't know
7: <laughs> i only know so much about the 70s but yeah that's really cool and i, I like that
1: Switched on pop with Nate Sloan and Charlie Harding speaking to Kay Flay about Ariana Grande's Into You. And here's another of their discussions, this one about Janelle Monáe's hit Make Me Feel, with their guest, the singer and rapper Izzo.
12: Just the way you make me feel. That's just the way you make me feel. That's just
9: the way you make me feel. So so soca so real. Uh-huh. That's
7: just the way you make me
1: feel uh-huh. so, 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 so here. Their focus is on how the artist's able to express a non-binary gender-fluid message musically as well as lyrically. You got
5: me right here.
6: I think there are a lot of clues in here that allude to both sexual tension and also sexual non-duality. She's been interviewed many times, and even in her music, she sort of remains intentionally opaque uh, because, as she says, she wants to be attractive to all people, mm. and she wants all yes, people to is. be attracted to all people. Um, <laughs> and, and she, yeah, there's no, there's no contest. <laughs> I think she's reinforcing this message both lyrically and musically. So I want to look at the melody specifically, and just right from the very top of the track one of her great traits is constantly referencing the future and the past at the same time. And Hmm. what's neat about this track is it's actually, it's a blues. Mm. It has a subtle blues progression and she uses a lot of seventh chords and chromaticism and things that, frankly, wouldn't be popular in a lot of modern Mm R&B, which sort of, I think, intentionally moves away from those sounds because it might sound sort of pastiche or too old, but she's mm-hmm. not afraid to adopt those and fit them into her song. Right. Well, I think there's a reason why she does this. Because, yeah. You, why? <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm getting some wide eyes here. She opens her song with... Um,
5: Baby, don't make me spell it out for ya.
6: <laughs> oh my gosh. Can you please join us all the time? Exactly. <laughs> and that line is surrounding this strong seventh. yeah you hear that yeah like tension tension tension. isn't it so rewarding Mm. what is that tension doing for us? like how do you hear that tension how does it support the song
5: it's so funny because like tension in a song normally happens in like the pre yes and the first verse is supposed to just feel right. Yep. It's supposed to be at what, like, the root is supposed to be, like, at yep. the one. <laughs> one note melody, <laughs> and you're like, simple. You're like, here yeah. we go, let me yeah. just... N-da-da-da. You know what <laughs> yep. I mean? And then she's, like, starting, like, and you're like, what's about to happen? Like, that's what it does for me. That melody... Reminds me of a movie. Like, you take mm. the track out of it, and if you just hear that melody, like, on some violins, it sounds like... <laughs> You know, like... Oh, it's cinematic. <laughs> yeah, super cinematic. Sim- yeah. Like, it's a moment in a movie where, like, the little kid is running and he's running towards something. Like, it yes. feels like, I don't know, like,
6: uh, so something in the distance. So at the start. It, and, and, yeah. and I think it's worth saying even for maybe for some of our listeners who may not be as familiar with music, it might be helpful to even just to play an example of if you were to open up on a plain major chord. And then you have a seventh chord. And mm-hmm. that seventh chord, it's unstable. Yeah. And it's the root... As opposed to that nice, beautiful Mm -hmm. thing.
5: Unresolved chords were always like Mm. my kryptonite. Mm. I remember because when they would play unresolved chords, I'd be like, just resolve it! Just resolve (laughs) it! (laughs) And
6: and she does because that chord wants to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. It wants to go in the progression of a blues. Mm -hmm. A typical 12-bar blues chord progression uses a lot of those seventh notes to have us constantly move through a progression and always have a little bit of instability to create movement. Mm. Mm. Right. So a blues is going to start right on that home chord, that one, and add the seventh it's going to move from the four, the five, back to the four, and back home to the one seven. That's sort of the blues progression. Lots of sevenths, lots of tension. And Mm-mm-mm. if there's one thing that is happening in the song, there is tension and there is movement. And she fulfills that sort of blues expectation by moving to what would be the next blues chord. She goes from the one chord of
5: the for you.
6: to the four chord. Try, look,
13: right?
5: Oh, it's like you. doom, 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 doom exactly (laughs) that is so the blues
6: that's so tight and you're not hearing it really
5: broke it down thank
6: you i appreciate that okay so i've I've got another gold star for charlie (laughs) i know right i was up late um (laughs) i have another supporting piece of evidence and it's chromatic text painting Mm. i think the line that a lot of people have zeroed in on this song is it's like I'm powerful with a little bit of tender, mm-hmm. an emotional sexual, sexual bender. bender.
12: Mm-hmm. It's like I'm powerful with a little bit of tender, an emotional sexual bender.
6: So that's the pre-chorus. As you said, the pre-chorus is typically where we get even more tension. I think there's no denying the tension only increases because not only does she use that seventh note, but she introduces chromaticism. Yes. notes outside of the scale. Things which are going to create disharmony, confusion, dissonance.
5: But you know what else? It's it's like descending chromatic. So like yeah. it was so unexpected when I heard that. I was like, wait a second. Wait. <laughs> you know, like there's tension but like when you have like a descending chromatic your body physically will go down too. You know, you're like ah.
10: Yeah. Oh, yeah. You
6: know? oh, okay. It's almost
5: great. relaxing. It's like she builds tension and then, I mean, children are listening to this so I won't say what it actually reminds me of. <laughs> but you're building tension tension yeah. and then it's like a release and then yeah. and you build that tension again it's very tantric until you get to the
9: yeah.
5: the climax of the hook right but like right. pre's normally gradually build right. But it's like she came in so hot yeah with that dun, 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 dun. and then she like backed off and was like ah, oh, not yet i'm like yeah. oh my god oh, i've never yeah. heard a pre actually tease me like that before
6: <laughs> <laughs> so let's i think it'd be appropriate to just play an example of, <laughs> yeah. of, of uh, just just to hear this so here's the pre So, just when she sings that line, that chromaticism, the no, 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 that's when she's singing the word sexual bender. Mm-hmm. And so. She's inferring that anyone listening can be sexually fluid. They don't have to be normative in their sexual preferences. Mm. And she reinforces it with a line which sort of blurs between one note and the next. Mm. There's sort of an uncertainty and a spectrum of sound.
1: Nate Sloan and Charlie Harding dissecting Janelle Monae's hit Make Me Feel with Izzo on Switched on Pop, produced by Vox and the Vox Media Podcast Network. As always, links so you can listen to more of that on our webpage at rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour now. And thanks for tipping me off to that, And If you'd like to share any of your favourite shows, email me at pods at rnz.co.nz and I'll feature them on a future show. Unfortunately, we're just about out of time now to make any more listening recommendations, so as well as listening to Switched On Pop, this week we've featured The Illusionist and IRL. But we have got some really great shows coming up in the next few weeks, including the excellent Shortcuts Out of the Blocks from Baltimore and the BBC's Great Lives with the comedian Matt Lucas talking about his idol and inspiration Freddie Mercury. So until next time, from me, Richard Scott, happy listening and enjoy the rest of your weekend. See you.
0: I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray.
5: And
8: I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents
4: The Anime Effect.